Go ahead and take a second and think about what is the most difficult shot in all of disc golf. If you and I are thinking the same thing, I'm super excited because in today's episode, we're talking about this most difficult shot, throwing the disc straight. Hey everybody, what is up? It's Antonio. I am so excited for today's episode. I have a lot of really fun things planned for this episode. One segment that is completely new and I cannot wait to share uh, share that with you. So like I said in the intro, we're going to be talking about how to throw straight. And I know, how is that the hardest shot? Well, we'll get into that in just a little bit. But after that, We will not be having our disc review this week. I don't have a disc to review. I didn't get to try uh, anything new or work with some uh, discs I'm a little bit more familiar with to be able to review for you. But um, OTB is always open, so you can always get a disc from them. They're the sponsor for the disc review. Then we have the the new segment. We're going to be talking about a pro tip that I've gotten from a pro. And so we will talk about that. We will recap the Ledgestone Open and then preview the Idlewild Open or Championship, whatever it's called, but we will preview Idlewild. So I'm super excited for today's show. Let's go ahead and let's get right into it. I know that throwing straight doesn't sound like it would be all that tough, but just think about what it means for a second before we get into how to do it with different stabilities and how the wind affects uh, throwing the disc straight. Think about what it means to throw straight. It means that you pick a point and without pretty much wavering left or right, the disc is going to fly directly at your target without any of that wavering. That is so difficult to do we we talk about hitting your target we talk about you know even hyzer shots and anhyzer shots you have to be aiming at a point but when you are trying to throw the disc straight what you're trying to do is basically avoid any left or right movement as much as possible that is why it's considered one of the most difficult shots because when you're throwing exactly straight ahead you are wanting it to land flat on the ground directly in front of you, so to speak. So you're not wanting it to go and fade into a gap. You're not wanting to really play a skip. You're wanting it to go exactly where you're looking, which means that the room for error is so, so small. And that's why throwing straight is so difficult. It's not that the act itself is maybe that challenging, but the room for error is so small. And that is what makes it so difficult because you know exactly when it goes straight. Like I had one of those throws this weekend. But if you try to throw straight and it doesn't go straight, it's blatantly obvious. So that is why throwing straight is so difficult. But there are a couple different ways that we can do this. Now, some of these methods are right on the brink of not really working. Uh, and there's a few reasons for that, and I'll, and I'll get into that. But for the most part, I have found that there are three ways that you can throw the disc straight. The first is to throw a flex shot with an overstable disc. The second is to throw just a flat shot with a neutral disc. 
And the third way is to throw a hyzer flip with an understable or a neutral disc. So the flex shot, you would only throw a flex shot with an overstable disc. And that's because on a flex shot, you're throwing the disc on Anheuser and having the disc stability sort of fight out of that Anheuser. Now, most shots on a flex shot are going to have a sort of S shape, but depending on your control and the stability of the disc and the power that you have, you can throw um, a flex shot that kind of just is it's, it almost looks like it's on Anheuser, but the stability of the disc is fighting out of it. And it's this really uh, gentle sort of ginger uh, uh, turn and fade that you have. For example, in the final round of, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in the final round of the Ledgestone Open, Ricky Wysocki had a throw on, oh, what hole number was it? I think it was hole uh, seven. I think it was hole seven or eight, the one where you have the trees with the gap in between and you have to cross the gap, otherwise you're OB. Ricky threw, I remember because I was just watching it earlier, an Orbit Rive, which is an overstable distance driver. And he threw it with just enough Anheuser angle on it that it, it turned enough to fly straight, but it didn't like drift super far right. But the stability of the disc counteracted his power enough that the disc didn't like fight to the left either. So Ricky took this overstable disc and threw it on a flex line. But one, he's Ricky. Um, and two, he really understands the disc and the angle that it needed. And that's why this shot can be so tough because most times when amateurs especially are throwing a flex shot, we're looking for that S shape and we're looking for that overstable disc to hold long, just long enough to finish and fade and skip. And that's the thing, with a flex shot, you have to prepare for a skip. So if you are wanting to learn how to throw a straight shot by throwing an overstable disc on a flex line, start with discs that are closer to the, to the neutral uh, stability. And when I say neutral, think of like a disc when thrown flat, it will fly straight with minimal fade, maybe like one fade on the uh, four flight number system. Um, start with something closer to that and just learn to control the disc's angle and speed that way and then work up to discs that are more overstable if you're really wanting to learn how to do this. Some of you might already have the power and touch for it, which is awesome, but that is the first way that you would throw a, a straight shot. It's a touchy method but it works, especially um, when you have a disc that you can do it really well with, it really opens up some options for you because that same disc, you can then go and throw a hyzer. So really, really cool stuff. The one after that, like I mentioned, is throwing a flat shot with a neutral disc. Now, in theory, this should be the easiest shot. But like I said, when you're throwing it straight, the room for error is so minimal that's why it feels so difficult you know when the disc goes straight and when it doesn't because it's not oh it faded just a little earlier it's like it's straight or it's not with a flat shot with a neutral disc that disc is not going to compensate for a bad throw or bad form it's going to go exactly where you release it and exactly um, where it's flying like it's not going to turn because you threw it a little early and the and the the turn of the disc will compensate for it or hyzer so on and so forth because you grip locked it 
No, a neutral disc. This might be. This is definitely the second hardest of the three. Um, will fly flat, or excuse me, will fly straight um, when thrown well, but it doesn't have a lot of give, and that can be really tough. And this is another reason why a straight shot is one of the toughest shots in all of disc golf. So to do this, you would want to use a disc with minimal turn and fade. The disc that I immediately think of when I think of this is something like the Mako 3. It's 5500. Just numerically, it is like the perfect straight shot. Now I've thrown some Mako 3s and this was also before like I know my backhand still isn't great and phenomenal, but it's so much better than it used to be. So when I remember probably about two, two and a half years ago, trying some Mako 3s, and they and they were star plastic, which added some stability, but I wasn't getting them to fly that sort of flight. Definitely when you beat them in, they fly a lot better. They fly like they're supposed to. That's just the way Innova Plastic is. Um, but just numerically, the Mako 3 is like that perfect middle ground that zero zero uh the old school fd with the minus one turn one fade um, something like a lone star disc lariat with the minus one turn one fade you want something along that that road for a flat uh, neutral straight shot you don't want something with too much turn like if you were thinking about like a discraft hades or an end of a strike or a mvp wave because those discs are made to turn and so you would be throwing our third shot, which is the Heiser flip to get that straight shot. So when you're looking for something to just throw a flat straight shot with a neutral disc, you want something that's not going to waver left and right a whole lot. Following that, we have the Heiser flip. Now this is, in my opinion, the easiest way to throw a straight shot. Most players will throw naturally on Heiser or can more easily throw on Heiser than any other line, whether it's a flat or Anheuser line. Heiser just tends to be the easiest. And so with the Heiser flip, you're gonna take that understable or that neutral disc, depending on your arm speed, and you're gonna throw it with some Heiser and the turn of the disc is going to flip it up to flat. Now, this is where it gets tricky. Normally, a Heiser flip uh, is great for carving in the woods, getting some extra turn even after the hyzer normally isn't that bad. But if you're wanting something that is pin straight, you're going to have to find a disc in your bag that will flip up to flat, but not turn a whole lot and then not fade super hard. So the way you'll go about doing this is one, choosing something probably closer to the more neutral stability, unless you have a slower arm speed. And um, you're going to adjust the hyzer angle. Okay, um, the way I adjust hyzer angle and the way I teach it is by using your hips. Okay, you don't wanna to mess too much with your wrist and your elbow and your shoulder trying to do all these things. Just think about bending forward a little bit more and then keeping everything about your form the same. That will kind of help you control that hyzer angle uh, by moving the fewest hinges or joints. Um, so anyway, with the hyzer flip, when you're trying to actually get it to fly straight, adjust your hyzer angle and go with something not too understable unless you uh, unless you have a slower arm speed where you need that understability to really help you accomplish this kind of throw. But those are the three ways uh, with the three different stabilities that I would recommend going and throwing a straight shot. I would say that the easiest is the hyzer flip. The next would be a flat shot 
with a neutral disc and then the hardest in my opinion to actually get it to fly straight not just to throw it uh, but to actually get this flight straight without you know skipping big time would be the flex shot with an overstable disc um, so i hope that is super helpful now let's go ahead and let's talk about how wind affects the straight shots so this is pretty typical of almost any shot you would throw a headwind is going to turn the disc. So when you're throwing, trying to throw a straight shot into a headwind, um, this is where an overstable disc could really shine because that over the the headwind will make the disc want to turn more. So the stability, the overstability of that uh, overstable disc, obviously, is going to counteract that turn, and you might get a really nice straight shot out of it. Throw something less stable, and you're going to have too much turn in a headwind. In the tailwind, you want the reverse. You don't want to throw an overstable disc in the tailwind, so you got to pay attention to this. If you have a, a gusting tailwind behind you, don't throw the flex shot if you're trying to get something perfectly straight. You'll want to throw something like a hyzer flip. Um, neutral shot, uh, like a flash shot, might be okay, but typically the hyzer flip with something a little extra flippy because that tailwind is going to make the disc fly more overstable. So the hyzer flip will still get, will still let it flip up with the extra understability, but then that wind's going to make sure that it doesn't turn too much. So that's why you maybe want to club up an understability if that makes sense. Go with something, you know, if you normally throw a minus one or two turn for your hyzer flip, go into something that might be a minus three or even a minus four, depending on the wind and your arm speed. And then crosswinds. This is where it can get, in my opinion, the trickiest. It's pretty easy to gauge a headwind and a tailwind, but the crosswind is where you can start to have problems. You see, when the disc comes right out of your hand, if it's you know flying flat, let's say, with a neutral disc, the crosswind isn't going to do too much. Um, it might have it shift a little bit, but for the most part, the flight plate is not exposed to the wind, so you should be okay. But with a flex shot, you're exposing the flight plate to the wind in one direction or the other. So let's say we have a left to right crosswind. So as a righty backhand, I'm throwing the flex shot. That means the bottom of the flight plate is exposed to the wind. Well, that means that it's more likely for the wind to push that disc and cause it to turn. Now, if we flip the wind and say that the wind is coming from the right and we're still throwing the righty backhand flex shot, now the top of the flight plate is uh, the wind is blowing into the top of the flight plate, which means that it's going to push that disc down. So this is where the crosswind with the flex shot can really start to mess up your throw because it might cause it to turn too much or it might push the disc down and you don't get that straight shot. And as it's pushing it down, it will probably be slowing the speed, which means that it will more than likely hyzer out a little bit early and might get some skip unless it's already a low line. It might just sit in the ground. Then the other thing with that as well is you could get a pretty nasty roll if it hits the ground on a weird angle as well. So that's how the crosswind can affect the flex shot. Neutral flat shot shouldn't affect it too much, but it, in this case, it can be really hard to execute that because even the slide, the wind will exaggerate even the slightest uh, missed angle on your throw. Then when you're throwing the hyzer flip, this is probably uh, the, the most important time to pay attention to the wind because the flex shot, you can kind of compensate a little bit more. Um, 
depending on it, or at least move to neutral. But on the understable shot, or excuse me, on the Heiser flip, this is the one that most people are going to feel comfortable with. And the same thing, but reverse for the flex shot is going to happen here. So on the Heiser flip, on the left to right crosswind, the top of the flight plate is exposed. And so what is more than likely going to happen on the Heiser flip, that disc won't get to flip up because the wind is pushing down on the top of the flight plate. And if you flip the wind, having it go from right to left, the bottom of the flight plate on a righty backhand Heiser flip, the bottom of the flight plate is exposed to this right to left crosswind, which is going to lift the disc and move it left. So my recommendation for the winds, headwind, throw an overstable disc when you're trying to get it to go straight so that flex shot could be really useful. Tailwind, throw the Heiser flip or a neutral disc depending on arm speed and stability. And then on the crosswind, do your best to just throw a neutral disc flat. That will minimize the amount of wind or the amount of the effect that the wind will have on the disc. It is a tough shot, but even if you miss your angle a little bit, the, uh, the consequences of that won't be as great as than if you were to throw a flex shot or a Heiser flip and had the wind get messed up in some sort of fashion. So there is a lot of information there. That is a lot to process. So if you need to like go back and listen to all this, I definitely understand. But if you need help with this, you can post a video in my Discord server and we can help you there. Or if you want one-on-one -on -one coaching, send me a video on GiveGo and use the discount code Rajiro and you'll get your first session for free and I can help you with that. Now, like I said in the beginning of the video, we don't have a disc review, but I do wanna remind you that if you want to get some discs and you're looking for something new, well, last week we talked about uh, the Lone Star Disc Harrier and the week before that was the West Side Bear. If you wanna try some of these discs that I've mentioned, the uh, Jester Disc Golf Peace Train, go ahead and head to OTB Discs and use discount code GladiatorDG for free shipping and you'll be able to hook yourself up with some awesome discs. And if you're on the East Coast and you want to get the disc sooner, check out otbeast.com and they, have, they are constantly growing the selection there. And I haven't checked in a little while, but the discount code might be active on OTB East as well so you could get the benefit there. Now let's go ahead and let's get into our new segment. I am super excited for this. We have a pro tip. Several, several, several months ago, I reached out to Own Scoggins and was just like, Own, you are an amazing putter, one of the best on tour, MPO and FPO field included. Your C1X percentage is always like 95% or higher. Own is such a great putter. So I asked her, what is her uh, practice schedule like? How does she... How did she become such a good putter? And I'm so excited to share her tips with you guys. Now, before we get into those, I will just say this. As with most things in disc golf, if you don't practice, it's really, if you don't practice the skill, it's really hard to improve. So with what we're gonna talk about from Own Scoggins, we, cause I'm guilty of this, I haven't done this in a long time we have to make the time if we're really trying to improve our game for competition, we have to make the time to do what she's saying to do. So first things first, Own says to practice one hour every day. Now that already might be caught, you know, ruffling some feathers. Yes, she's a touring pro. She theoretically has more time. So an hour 
If that is too hard for you to get into right now, start with 15 or 30 minutes. And as much as you can, try to have your putting practice station set up permanently so that you never have to go and like grab your basket, set it outside, get your putting stuff all together. Because that just adds time and it sort of causes friction between the decision to practice your putting and then finally getting to practice your putting. So she says to practice one hour every single day. The next tip is to keep your hands and wrists tight and release with 100% commitment. That is one of the most important things, whether you practice a lot or you don't, pretty much your putt will be a result of your commitment. And when you're committed to the putt, that means you've picked a spot that you're aiming at. You said, I'm releasing the disc right there on my putt. That's the line I'm committing to. Nothing else is in your brain. And you're keeping that, uh, the hands and wrists tight. Now, everybody sort of can interpret this a little differently. I will just say that in the, uh, in the spirit of keeping your hands and wrists tight, you don't want to be gripping the disc the disc uh, with like a death grip or anything. That's not, That's I don't think what Owen is talking about here, but you need to be able to sort of pop those fingers like we've talked about in previous episodes to really improve that spin on that putt and sort of get a cleaner, more consistent release using your fingers more. And to do that, you have to actually be squeezing the disc or having some kind of pressure on it. So the pressure that you apply is gonna be different for every person, but just think about actually applying pressure with your fingertips on the disc and uh, committing 100%. Now, Own is a professional, one of the best putters in the world. She practiced putts 300 to 500 putts a day, but that takes some time. Like that is legitimately a few hours of practice. That is more than one hour, unless you just have a stack of like 25 putters that you can just run through in like two minutes at a time. Three to 500 putts a day. She says, start with 50 a day. Build those good habits, build that endurance because you're going to find as you're working on this that it is tiring. Your arms getting tired. Your legs are getting tired. Your your focus and your attention is not there. So start with 50 putts. Use the DG Putt app. Use a champ cap to help you with this. You know, start with 50 a day and then move to more and more and more. I wouldn't say go 50, 75, 100 in a span of three days, but maybe in a span of three weeks and see as you keep track on something like the DG Putt app or you know a pen and paper kind of thing, try and focus on like where do you start falling off a little bit. That will be sort of your clue like, hey, my endurance is ending here. So I may keep putting here, but I'm not going to be worrying about how many I make, so to speak, until you can build that endurance. So start with 50 and build more. The next thing, which I think is a great tip and this is the final one, start from close then move back you know, with each set of putts, then move close again, and then move back, and then go to jump putts. And so this, this uh, tip here is really about, you know, similar to basketball, you don't start warming up for basketball from the three-point line if you're doing it properly. You start with your layups. Then you move further out, taking a step at a time, and you work on that. So the same thing here, start from seven, 
10 feet away. It's going to feel really silly taking those putts, but how many times do we feel the nerves on a 10 foot putt and we're like, uh oh, I'm nervous about this. This builds that confidence. This builds those good habits, getting that nice, that the, the, the wrist warmed up for your putts or your arm warmed up for your putts. So start close, then move back, you know. I would say about three foot increments, about one meter, give or take. Um, that will help you not make too big, have to make too big of an adjustment on your form without changing. And then once you hit the edge of C1, go back in, move back in. That helps you adjust to different distances and then move back out. And then you can go on to jump putts and in, in, uh, in the same format, working on you know making a lot of those. Uh, or getting comfortable with your jump putts or step putts or just longer putts in general, depending how you prefer to putt from C2. But so she says to practice one hour a day, keep your hands and wrists tight and release with 100% commitment. She practices three to 500 putts a day, but she recommends starting with 50 a day until you can build up to more. And then start close, then go far, and then back and forth until you're ready to go to C2 putting. So that are, those are some amazing putty, putting tips from Owen Scoggins. So I want to know, one, if you found this helpful. I hope you did. I know I have found it supremely helpful, and I can't wait to put these uh, tips into practice. But two, let me know which pros you want to hear from. You, If you're on YouTube watching this and listening to this, go ahead and comment down below. If you're in my Discord, go ahead and message me in Discord or put it in the chat there. Instagram, you know. Spotify and Apple, you don't really have a place to comment, so it'd be kind of hard to do that. But find a way to reach out to me via Instagram or Discord or on YouTube to be like, hey, I want to hear what this pro has to say. And if you have a specific topic that you want to hear from them about, let me know that too, and I'll reach out to them so that I can share that information with you. I already have a couple in mind that I plan on reaching out to, but I want to hear what you all have to say. So I hope you found that first pro tip super helpful. I know I have, and uh, I can't wait to put it into practice. Now let's go ahead and let's recap the Ledgestone Open. No surprise here, but the Ledgestone Open was great. I really look forward to this tournament every year, especially now that they've added Northwood Blacks to the layout. It is just such a good tournament every single year. The, I think the players look forward to it. I think it has great um, a great layout. It challenges the players with a combination of some open and wooded golf, especially with Northwood now. And I just really, really like the Ledgestone Open. And this year, the competition was fierce and it was competitive really to the very end. Um, well, with a couple holes to spare pretty much to the very end. But yes, it was a great tournament. I enjoyed it a lot. I got to watch most of it. <laughs> Not all of it. I got to watch most of it, which is more than uh, what the last month or two of this summer has been. But the weather was good for about 75% of it. You know, the final two rounds dealt with some rain. The final round especially dealt with the most. And so that posed some unique problems for the players and also put a lot of pressure because it was like, hey, you know, if you were playing well for the first three rounds and now you have this rain, what's the likelihood that you completely, you know, bomb and you end up not winning because the the elements got to you? Well, that didn't happen for either of our winners, but, you know, going into the round, that is definitely something 
to consider. So it was competitive in both fields going into the final round, uh, both MPO and FPO. There were multiple people that could have won. Yes, you had uh, two individuals that were leading the pack in Cole Radalin and Missy Gannon. But given the conditions and just, you know, how the, the scoring capabilities of the other players who were behind them, it's possible for pressure and the elements to have gotten to them. But they didn't. Cole Radalin, who has had multiple uh, podium finishes this year and has been in the running a handful of times, finally gets his first Disc Golf Pro Tour win, his Elite Series win. So super happy for him. He is one of several players this year on the MPO side who have won their first Elite Series event, which is just really, really cool to see. And it's just a testament to the depth in the MPO division and just how competitive it's getting. I know I was listening to uh, Big Germ and Yuli talk in the final round, and it's one of those like, you know, yes, we say every year the competition gets better and better, but it feels like every single week it just gets better and better. That scores, you're having to shoot two or three strokes better each round not just over the whole tournament, but each round in order to compete and in order to win. And something else that Jer, uh, Big Germ was talking about is that, you know, for the longest time, it was like the 30-year-olds could win pretty frequently because they had the experience and they had the talent. But then as the sport continued to grow over the last, you know, couple decades, especially the last 20 years, the if probably, you know, the winning age group started to uh, decrease in age, where now all of a sudden the mid to high 20s and now we're getting so many players under the age of 21 winning last year we had i believe it was a lot yeah last year gannon burr winning usdgc as a 17 year old coral dolan just won he's 18 isaac robinson has won a couple events and i'm pretty sure he's around that same age group uh, along with a couple other players so definitely mpo side has a lot of young competition that is just taking victories from the older uh, older discover so making it really competitive really really fun stuff and then missy gannon with back-to-back uh, ledgestone open championships which is awesome she has played so well at this event her i'm so happy you know i've talked about in multiple episodes now that she's always been right there the last this this season and always just in the final round kind of loses it and it was so good to see her win and to see her, you know, not lose it and just play with such confidence, which is so good to see. Having another name win, it was just awesome. Really happy to see Missy Gannon get that victory. And what's ironic, you know, ironic and just hard to believe I saw, I think it was Stat Mando or Disc Golf Pro Tour posted a statistic where basically they said that of Missy's four wins, she averages more uh, money per win than any other player in the FPO field, even more than Kristen Tatar. Like Missy's average winning is like twelve thousand and change, and uh, Kristen's average winning is like eight grand and change. So it's a pretty big disparity. Missy has won some pretty big tournaments with big purses, and so that has definitely helped her average. And you know, maybe maybe it's she listens to the money talk. You know, when there's big big time money on the line, maybe that's when she uh, uh, 
has her best game when that when there's even more pressure than just winning. But super happy for her to win. And the FPO uh, competition was fierce throughout the entire tournament. There were multiple players. You had Owen Scoggins, you had Sarah Hokum, and you had a couple others who were in there as well. So that was just really cool. Um, in case you didn't hear, in the final round, we had more or less back-to-back aces. You had Andrew Marweed acing, and then not two holes later, I believe is how it goes, you had Calvin ace with a Heiser flip turnover eagle shot. It is just a thing of beauty. Both shots are things of beauty. Uh, they really, really are. But that turnover um, eagle shot was just so nice. And Marweeds was a forehand straight shot down a, down a 275 foot gap. I mean, he was throwing a Raptor on a 275 foot hole. He was, he had to be going for the ace, it feels like. And he got it, sure enough, which was awesome. So that was really cool to see and to see the highlights on social media. And, you know, I'm, I don't care about spoilers on social media just because it's like every other sport, you know, I can't watch every game out there. So I see who wins and loses, you know, whether or not I care. So it was really cool to see those highlights, see who won. So I like all the courses. Let's talk about the courses here. I like all the courses that they use for Ledgestone. They use some historical ones that have been used for a long time. But then for FPO, a couple years ago, I think it was a couple years ago, unless I'm misremembering, but they added Sunset Hills. And I think that is just great. Um, I like when they differentiate MPO and FPO. Not just with different T-pads, because that's like always the easiest solution that a lot of uh, tournament directors do. But I feel like taking the extra step and the extra effort to say, hey, we have a completely different layout on this course as not just new tee pads, but as like a different course on the property or just um, the the alternate tee pad is so unique that's not just a shorter version of the MPO tee pad um, or just going to a new course. I really like the intentionality with that because I think it uh, even more so it helps with legitimizing the FPO competition, which is so good. They have been so much fun to watch this year. And a course like Sunset Hills, I was watching it and I actually looked it up on UDisc. It is a scorable course. And, you know, it is so cool. Obviously, like the number of strokes are the same, but seeing the negative numbers, it's really cool. I think just, you know, even your average disc golf viewer wants to see low scores and playing at Sunset Hills definitely helps encourage some low scoring players, you know, shooting five under, seven under, nine under, 10 under, uh, you know, with good weather and everything is just really cool to see. Um, And obviously, you know, they have the lower scores. I think it just helps make it more competitive because there are some holes there that really are birdie or bust. Uh, I believe it's whole, well, I don't know what whole number it is, come to think of it, but uh, Sunset Hills, it's the tee pad. There's the, the, basically the triple Mando. It's not really a triple Mando, but it's kind of serves as that the gap 240 foot hole across the water onto what's a quasi Island green, 246 feet. You can, 
you should be able to throw the putter backhand, but if it hyzers a little bit, just a little too much, it can go in the water. So then you also have the forehand, but then you gotta make sure that you don't turn that forehand over or skip too far to the right, because then you have a really risky putt coming back to the basket with the water right behind it. So just, you know, that's a, that's a hole. It's like, I need to birdie this. It's 246 feet. Like I should be able to get this and all the FPO players should be able to get it. But it's just some really unique challenges in there. And I really like that uh, a lot about that course. And then obviously Northwood uh, is just so challenging. But I will say this, as they've been playing that course every year since they first uh, played it, I think in like uh, 21 or maybe 19, I I think it was 2021 was the first time they played it there. I can tell players are getting way more comfortable and scores are going lower at that course because as expected, they're beginning to figure it out. And yes, the the skill level is, is growing every year. But as you play a course more, we all know this, the more you play a course, the more you figure it out, the better you you shoot at that course and so we're seeing that with northwoods as well which is just really cool it doesn't mean that the course is any you know easy by any means because those lines are still really hard to hit but players are figuring out the bestest the best discs to throw on those holes and the best lines to take which is just really cool we're seeing them actively learning so i really like that a lot especially as a former educator so very cool let's go ahead and let's recap the uh, or not re yeah Let's um, recap the uh, the the standing. So in MPO, Cole Rodolin in first place at minus thirty six. That is just insane. Second place, Calvin Heinberg minus thirty one, a five stroke victory. Third place, Ricky Wysocki minus twenty eight. Fourth place, Ezra Robinson minus twenty seven. Fifth place, Andrew Marweed minus twenty six. Sixth place, Simon Lazat minus twenty three. Seventh place, Casey White, minus 22. Let's go, Casey. Eighth place, Chris Dickerson. So good to see Chris Dickerson on lead card coverage. It was the first time, I think, like all season. So happy. He's one of my favorite players, and it's been a bummer not seeing him on lead card coverage. But Chris Dickerson, eighth place, minus 21. Let's go, man. Ninth place, James Proctor. Again, a top 10 finish, minus 20. And then 10th place, Adam Hammes. At minus 19, we did not have a single tie in the top 10. That is that is nuts. That normally doesn't happen. And then in FPO, first place, Missy Gannon at minus 16. Second place, Owen Scoggins at minus 12. Tied for third, Sarah Hokum and Ella Hansen at minus 11. Tied for fifth, Maria Oliva and Macy Vela Diaz at minus 6. Seventh place, Holland Hanley at minus 5. Eighth place, Holly Finley at minus 3. And then ninth place, Jennifer Allen at plus two and tied for 10th, Alexis Mandahano and Haley King at plus three. So really good. A lot, a lot of FPO players in the negatives, which is awesome, which is the benefit of a course like Sunset Hills for the FPO division. That is really, really cool uh, to see all that. So Ledgestone Open was a great event. It normally is every single year. So I, uh, I'm... I'm happy that it went well this year and that the weather was definitely a little bit of a bummer, but not too bad. All right, let's go ahead and let's uh, preview the upcoming tournament. We have Idlewild coming up this weekend. This is one of my favorite events all year. I just think that the course is so, so cool. I love the wooded track. I love hole 16. I believe it's hole 16, which is like 
the 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 creek or river just winding through the whole thing and so you have ob everywhere you have all these specific landing zones it is such a challenging course um i just really enjoy uh idle wild a lot and living in nashville it's a lot closer to me now than it was when i was living in texas but it is still pretty far away. I thought it was a lot closer. And then I realized that Burlington is like far north Kentucky, not anywhere south like I thought it was, which is a bummer. I would have loved to go, but alas, it was not possible. So Idlewild, such a cool course. However, this time of year, it seems that Kentucky, Tennessee, gets a good bit of rain. It feels like the last several years, Idlewild has had one or two rounds that it just rains like crazy. And now don't get me wrong. I love, you know, things that, you know, especially as a fan watching, like how can these players overcome the the elements, these obstacles that they're facing? But there have been times where it's like, this is just too much rain. The only reason they're still playing is because there's no lightning. But it's like, it is torrential downpour. You're not throwing the disc with a dry hand. All your towels are wet. You're soaking wet. Like, there comes a point when it's hard to watch, not because they're playing bad because they're incompetent or anything, but it's because just there is so much to overcome and you can only throw a wet disc so well. So I'm hoping... Hoping, hoping, hoping that the weather is cooperative and we get something comparable to this past weekend where it's at least sunny and clear most of the time. So that is uh, Idlewild, the LWS Open at Idlewild. Um, I checked uh, UDISC before and they don't have the Grip6 picks up yet. I checked last week too after I uh, recorded the podcast and for some reason, it didn't show up for me, so I missed it, but I am definitely going to make an effort to pay more attention and definitely sign up tomorrow or Thursday for the Grip 6 Pick Challenge and uh, you know, put my picks in there, but I'm super excited for Idlewild. I know Kristen Tatar will not be there because she posted on Instagram and said that she won't re- be returning to the States until Worlds, and so she's going to continue competing in Europe on the European Pro Tour and and those kinds of things. With the, I think the Estonia, well, the Estonia Open already happened, but a couple other big tournaments that are coming up around there. So that is all that I have for you, everybody. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you learned something new about how to throw straight. It's a challenge. It's definitely a shot we all need to learn, and there are a couple ways to do that with flex shots, flat shots, and hyzer flips. I hope the pro tip from Own Scoggins on how to improve your putting and really the multiple tips that were built into that, I hope those were helpful for you. I know I learned a lot from that and I can't wait to put that into practice. And then we recapped the Ledgestone Open and finished it off by previewing the Idlewild or the LWS Open at Idlewild. So I'm super excited for that. I hope you are too. Make sure one of the things, teach, play, disc golf. Our emphasis here is to teach people how to play disc golf, whether it's someone who's never played before or you're just reaching out and building community online and encouraging disc golfers. I already have plans to go play with someone on Saturday morning who's never played before. I am so excited. Uh, They're looking forward to it too. It's going to be a blast. So go out and teach someone how to play this weekend. And don't forget to go out and play as well. Have fun meet up with some friends, you know, enjoy your time out there, play some disc golf, and always remember, 
Have a great round. Thank you.